great to be here. We're going to continue the sermon series. It's called Refractions. And uh, it's the idea that God has put something in us, that he shines something into us, and that something comes out because of the love of Jesus Christ shining into his people, like light going into a prism. And then there's something beautiful that comes out in the form of a rainbow. And, and we've been talking in these past sermons. They've been about patience, about kindness, about peace. And we're continuing that same thought. And, and we're asking the question, what has God shined into us that he actually wants to come refracted out of us to the world around us? What does the world really need? And tonight, for the, for the subject, I, I thought we'd just answer one simple question. We're just going to keep it sort of light. And so this is what it is. It's, what does the world need most? Right? Just sort of simple, right? And I'm, I'm like, what do you guys think that is? Is that, uh, do we need like clean energy? We need world peace? I might vote for Kona coffee. We need more Kona coffee. Um, but that's the topic. What does the world need most? That, and it, it's actually something that every religious person and every secular person would, would agree on. Um, what every human being would agree, there's not enough in this world and it's killing us. And so today we're going to look at a passage that's talking about forgiveness. It's talking about forgiveness. And, and I, I want to be really clear. I'm going to talk about love. But forgiveness is the source that God wants to put into us. And then what gets refracted out of us is the love of Jesus Christ. But the source that God wants to shine on us is forgiveness. And the problem with our world is that there's a littleness of our love. Our, our love shining out is small, way too small. Uh, you could talk to someone who's an atheist. They have a secular worldview. They would agree with you. There's not enough love in this world. So there, there's, when people have little love, we become self-centered. No empathy. We, we're not thinking of how someone else feels. We become indifferent toward others. We start to prioritize our needs, our desires over the well-being of others. We become insensitive to their feelings. And it goes beyond that, even to, to harmful behavior or, or neglect. On a personal level, lack of love can, can lead us... Uh, it, it, we, we see these relationships, we, we lose them. It, we start to feel social isolation. We feel loneliness or despair. On a societal level, all kinds of bad things, right? Division, conflict, injustice come from the littleness of love. And I think that's why our, the voice of our culture is saying so loud, like, we need more love. But the question that we're going to ask today is, How? How do we love more? How do we become more loving? Some people have thought the answer is religion. And I'll define religion this way. I'm going to define religion as earning. It's like it's trying to earn, trying to be good enough. It's the opposite of grace. Okay? So, so Jesus is something different, but religion is like all these people trying to be good. Does religion make us more loving? Well, it's that... If we're trying to be good enough that God would start to love us, it actually never leads us to be more loving. History's proven it actually leads us to be more intolerant. It's like a, a, a dogmatism. It's a kind of religion that actually makes us more prideful. You start to look down on other people who don't think the same way that you do. And so in order to get away from religion, we swing the pendulum the other way and we go, okay, let's just get rid of religion completely and let's go to a secular worldview and we think of what, what is the world? And then you find there these ideas like you still have to earn it. You have to include everyone. 
Love is love. You need to be accepting and inclusive. So, so this too becomes another kind of earning. You have to use the right terms, the right language. Expect people who agree with your view. We become uh, desperate to get everything right on both sides. Earning in religion and earning in the world. And so we need something other. And the question we're going to ask today is how? How can we become a more loving person? What can we do? Is there like a dial in my heart I could turn up and, just, and, and become more loving? Is it just trying harder? And the good news is that Jesus himself actually talks about this. He makes it so clear. And we see it in a story in Luke chapter 7. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 7. In verse 36, and, and it's a story of the life of Jesus Christ and what he did and what was happening with him, and, and we're going to learn from his teaching tonight. So this is really Jesus teaching us. It's Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read the whole story beginning in verse 36. So if you're able, would you stand with us as our custom for the reading of God's word? Verse 36, Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into that Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is the word of the Lord for this beautiful evening. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, everyone. Now, from this passage, I want to show three things. We want to look at the burden of earning, this burden that we carry. Second, we're going to see the change that we need. And lastly, we're going to see the power that transforms us. So first, the burden that we carry. Uh, You see the burden, this burden of earning in this passage is with Simon, the Pharisee. So what do we know about Simon? 
Well, Simon's a religious professional. A Pharisee was someone who thought that God would be happy with them if they followed all of the rules, and they were really good at following the rules. They were, they were worked so hard. Most of the Pharisees were way more religious than, than I am. Way better, way more disciplined, way more determined. Do you know they, they would memorize the first five books of the Bible? And I, I'm not saying the first five verses of the Bible. The first five books, they, they, would, they would commit to memory. They were so disciplined. They were devoted to following the rules and honoring God. But they kept putting all this pressure on themselves. Religious zeal turned into earning burden. And we see this in Simon. If you start with earning and it depends on you, then if you actually start succeeding, it turns into pride. So the story starts, Simon invites Jesus over to his house. Doesn't that sound nice? It's like this nice guy, right? Uh, it sounds like hospitality. It sounds like kindness that Simon would do this. But what's his motive? Why did, why did Simon invite Jesus over? Was his motive love? Was it sincere faith? Is that what he was doing? And we see from the story that wasn't his motive at all. Um, when the woman of bad reputation comes in, in verse 39, we actually see the thoughts of Simon. I love that the Bible it, it like gives us insight. What was he actually thinking? Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon sees her. He thinks, Jesus can't be from God because he's letting someone who's bad touch him. And this, is this the sort of thinking that someone who's sincerely wondering if Jesus is the Messiah? No. You see, Simon had invited Jesus there, and he was testing him. He, he, was, he was poking at him. He was evaluating him. It's possible that Simon wanted to catch Jesus in something that he would do so that Simon could be like, ha-ha, see, you're not the Messiah. You're not the one. So at best, Simon's skeptical. At worst, he's an enemy. I mean, he, he probably was a really nice guy to his friends, but he's not a friend to Jesus. And when this woman walks in and Jesus isn't repulsed by her, Simon's like, ha I caught you. You're not from God. And if that wasn't enough for us to see Simon's motive, we actually see more and get a more fully orbed picture from the way that Simon behaves, what, what he does when Jesus shows up. Because just like today, if you have a guest in your house, do you know there's certain norms of, of like propriety and cultural norms that you would, you would do? If someone came over to your house, you might get up and go greet them, maybe offer them a beverage, maybe an appetizer. And when those norms aren't met, there's something, it's almost offensive, right? Can you imagine if you went to a Filipino birthday party and there was no food, <laughs> right? Just think, I mean, if you were part of the Filipino culture and you went to someone's birthday party and no one gave you any food, you have to understand at a Filipino birthday party, before you get out of the car, they're handing you food. And then they're like, hand you food at the party and then you're full and they give you food and then you're going home and they give you more food. What would happen if there was no food? It would be like, something's wrong, something's wrong. Or, or maybe an Asian household. If you were walking into an Asian household wearing muddy boots and walk straight through the living room. There's just a cultural norm that you're breaking. And that's what's happening here. It was, it was true in Jesus' time. Uh, it, and this was the cultural norm. 
when a guest would come in your house in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, you would give them water to wash their feet. Why? Because the, they wore sandals, right? They, they're, like, they're, they're walking around all the time. They walked everywhere, and the, the roads aren't paved, and there are cows and horses and camels that walk on the roads also. So you can just start to imagine the filth that would be on someone's feet. And then a guest would come in your house, and they're like, oh, we don't want to make your house dirty, but their feet are dirty, and they would feel this social moment of, like, what should I do? And a good host would offer water so they could come in, wash their feet, and then they would relieve that anxiety of the guest. Now you're clean as you come into my home. Another custom is in the way that they would greet one another, right? In Eastern culture, you might bow. Western culture, you might shake hands. What about a Middle Eastern culture? What do you do? The kiss, right? It's like if you go to Russia, you better get ready for some you know, big, tall Russian guy to kiss you out there. Middle Eastern culture, they're going to kiss. It's a sign of acceptance. It, it would be rude not to greet someone in that way. And then the third thing that Jesus points out is oil, being anointed with oil. And that, that might seem a little more confusing. What's that about? Well, the oil was a symbol of health and comfort. And it would usually be olive oil, and they would put a little bit on your head as if to say, I'm wishing a blessing for you of health and comfort. And it, and it became even more than that. It started to become a way where they would say, you are my honored guest. Um, you might be familiar with Psalm 23. It's one of the most famous psalms in the Bible where David's writing. He says, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you realize there's a line in that psalm? And maybe you've never thought of it before. What does this line mean? It says, you anoint my head with oil. And what that's saying, it's David's saying, Lord, you've treated me like your honored guest. That's what he's saying. You've made me your honored guest. It's this beautiful symbol of welcome. And so there we see a little bit more of Simon's heart because verse 44, Jesus points out, Simon, you didn't do any of those things. Not even the common courtesy. Jesus says, I came to your house. You didn't give me water for my feet. That's like the lowest common denominator of, of being polite. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't welcome me. Jesus says, you didn't give me oil for my head. So he didn't honor him. And what is Jesus pointing out? What he's pointing out is that Simon doesn't have a sincere love for Christ. He, he's pointing out that his motive wasn't there to honor him. His motive was to bring him there to judge him. And this is the burden we carry. This is what happens with that earning. And, and I, I, I want to show you a graph that just has this, this picture of what's going on. There's these two different ways. We're trying to be a good person and it can make us into this really self-righteous person. So on one side, you see the religious. That gray circle represents earning. And when we have to earn, and it depends on us, the result of that is judgment. But on the other side, what does the world offer? It's offering something that's earning also. You have to fit in. You have to do everything right. If you don't do what the cultural norms are, there's judgment. And so both religion and the world fail. And what we need is something other. We need something that is unearned. And I love that. You, what you cannot earn. The gospel is what you can't earn. 
It's not based on you. It's based on grace. And so Jesus shows us this better way. And and we're going to see this in the story. What leads us to become the most loving people? It's not by being like the world or like being the religious. It's becoming something other. So what's the change that we need? The change we need, we see it in verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So here Luke begins. He, he starts by saying, behold. It's like this exclamatory phrase. He's drawing attention to something. It's like saying, alas. That's a drawing attention to it. What does Luke want us to see? He wants us to see the woman. That, there, that there's something surprising. There's something astounding about this woman. T- take a look at this woman. What's happening? Well, it says that the woman had a bad reputation. And, and some commenters think that she was a prostitute exchanging sex for money. It, it seems like the general consensus is that doesn't necessarily mean that she was a prostitute. Being a sinner or of bad reputation, whatever it means, it, it meant that there was sexual promiscuity and it meant that you would be judged harshly by your culture. And so the cultural taboo of this, this sexual woman, this, this woman who's uh, of bad reputation... The Jewish religious culture 2,000 years ago, how would they treat her? Well, they treated her like an outcast. They, they call her a sinner. It, it might be close to the way that the religious culture of today has treated people who are marginalized or people who are part of the LGBTQ community. There's a religious community that loves little, but do you see it's not Jesus. While the whole room was judging her, what does Jesus do? There's something about him. Something has happened about encountering Jesus, and she's never going to be the same. Like, there's been grace in her life. There's been acceptance. There's been transformation. And, and so we have to assume that she somewhere else had heard Jesus' teaching before, that, that she, she was not hearing him for the first time. There was something because she came with a plan. Do you see that from the the text? She must have heard his teaching, and she said to herself, I want more. I want to be near this person. I want to learn from him some more. And so when she heard he's going to be at this house, she makes a plan. And just think for a moment with me of all the reasons why she might not want to go to that house. First, she'd be visible to everyone in the community. They, they would know her checkered past. They'd probably make some gossipy comments about her. More than that, it's the house of a Pharisee who's really likely to judge her. How many times had a self-righteous Pharisee judged her in her past? How many religious wounds do you think she had? And it just shows how compelling Jesus had become in her eyes. She was not invited to the party, and it's the house of someone who's going to judge her, and she still goes. She still goes. How many people have felt like they could never go to a church because I'm too bad? 
How many of us have been judged by religious people? Maybe you're here tonight and you were scared even to come tonight because you've been hurt. And I wonder if you might feel like this woman where you're not sure, maybe you're scared, maybe you're wounded, but there's something about Jesus. And for this woman, he's at the party, so she can't stay away. And this is how purposeful and determined she is. She overcomes all those obstacles that might keep her away, and she comes up with a plan. So how do we know she has a plan? It's because it's she brings perfume. She, she, it tells us there's this very special perfume. And isn't this, at first I'm like, isn't that a weird thing to bring to dinner? But in those days, it would be this precious and expensive, beautiful ointment. Sometimes a jar that would cost a fortune. There's even some speculation that it could have been her life savings just in this one jar of perfume. And that jar didn't have a lid. I've got a photo for you of, a, of an alabaster jar from that time. They did not have corks. Or they had corks, but they didn't use them in the same way. The, the, the top is a part of the alabaster. And what it's sealed, so that means you would have to save this for the most special occasion. And then you would only use it once. You'd break open the jar. You'd allow that fragrance to come out, filling the house with this beautiful aroma. And you'd pour that ointment out on the object to make it beautiful. So this is probably her most precious treasure, her most precious possession. She can only offer it once. And what does she do? She plans. She takes. She carries it. And she goes to this dinner party. And so this party that she's not invited to, she shows up. Do you see how much she loved Jesus? This isn't a love little lady. This is a love much lady. And she walks right into their living room for dinner. Um, uninvited. I, I'm just going to suggest that maybe you don't try this today. You're probably going to get arrested. Um, although if you come to my house, I, I'll just bring you in the kitchen and we'll, we'll make, you, make you help us with cooking and cleaning. But in those days, this was acceptable. It was totally acceptable. A dinner party like that would be an occasion for the whole village. And, and often people would come and they would sit by the wall just to observe what happened at the meal. And then at the party, um, the, the dinner guests wouldn't sit at a table with chairs. It was a low table. They would sort of recline their, their elbow on the table, their feet extended behind them. And, and apparently this woman found her way over to the wall behind Jesus. She'd come all this way. She had overcome all of these obstacles. She's carried this precious ointment, her most valuable possession. She's planning on pouring it out. Nothing is too good for Jesus. And then she comes to this moment and she hesitates. She's overcome by emotion. It probably wasn't in her plan. But there's, there's this overwhelming sorrow for her past mingled with this overwhelming gratitude for the sense of forgiveness that she had from Jesus. And as she stands there, her heart's filled to overflowing love and reverence for this one who's changed her life forever. And she starts to weep. She starts to cry. And I don't know what thoughts might have been in her head. I love that it records that she weeps. 
You have to just imagine what's going on in her heart as these tears come out. She came to do this thing. She's probably going, I came to do this, and now I'm crying. What am I doing? You know, she's crying. And it tells us she's so physically close to Jesus that her tears fall on his feet while he's reclined at the table. She's so close to him. But his feet are getting wet. So she does one more thing that's unthinkable. In a Middle Eastern culture, her hair would be up. For a woman in that culture, it's her beauty, her honor. And she lets it down. And she would take what would be her sense of glory, and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. And she keeps crying. Verse, verse 45 tells it, Jesus says she's been continually kissing his feet. That, that she was crying and wiping and perfuming and kissing, and she didn't stop. So the question I have is, what's taking place in this woman's life? <laughs> like, like what, what happened to her? What, what kind of overflow of love is this? It's, it's amazing to see what's, what's happened, what's transformed her. Simon is judging and evaluating this woman is overflowing with love for Jesus. And Simon gets really offended. He sees the woman. It's attacking his framework of his religious view. She's part of the world. He's part of the religious view. Something's wrong. What's proper isn't taking place. It just shows that Simon missed the heart of God. And do you see what's happening to Simon? He's more offended at her sin than he is at his own. And are we any different? Have we ever been more offended by the sin of another than by our own? Have we ever judged someone? Have we ever asked, why are they here? How much like Simon are we? It's easy to think, oh, the moral of the story is be like the woman. But I think Jesus is saying because he doesn't want us to be like Simon. If Simon attended Resonate, he'd probably be a nice guy. Um, he probably would be at Bible studies and at church every week. You'd probably like him. But then at the dinner party, his real motives are shown. We see more into his heart at the dinner party. The good news is that Jesus still wants to take these moments to teach us what can transform us. Just a beautiful thought. Simon invited Jesus and Jesus came. He even loves the arrogant man. His love has no limits. There's no one like our Savior. So what then is the power that transforms us? We see it in the story Jesus tells. He tells the story to help all the guests and to help Simon. And the story is really simple. It goes like this. There's two guys. They both owe money. One, one guy owes 50 denarii, and a denarii was, a, a, was like a, a, about a day's wage. Whatever the average man would work, if you could earn it in a day, that's a denarii. So he owed 50 days wages, a couple months pay. What does the other guy owe? 500 days wages, so that's a little bit more. It's all like closer to a year and a half, something like that, maybe more. And, and neither one can pay the debt. The money lender, he could have thrown them in jail. He, he could have just been, I'm done with you guys, and, and sent them off to debtor's prison. But instead, he forgives both debts. And then I imagine the scene. I, I don't know. It doesn't tell us in the scripture, but I just imagine it. 
I imagine Jesus looked straight into Simon's eyes as he asked this question. And he says, now which of them will love more? Which of these two guys that have both been forgiven their debts will reveal the greatest love toward the moneylender? And Simon answers correctly. He says, I suppose it's the one who's forgiven more. It's funny he says suppose there. If you look in the text, he's not even like clear then. He's like, I guess you want me to say this answer, Jesus, right? That's what he's doing. Jesus is still patient with him. He's still patient with him. And he says, you've answered rightly. Then Jesus turned the attention to the woman. And in front of everyone, he exposes the lack of love, the littleness of the love of Simon. Verse 44 says this. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. See, he's saying, Simon, she has many sins, but they're forgiven. And it's clear from the fact that she's so conscious of the forgiveness that she's received from Jesus Christ that out of her heart comes this overflowing love. She's, her love for Jesus, it's so intense, the outpouring. It's this deep and profound sense of forgiveness that turns into this great love. And then Jesus flips it around. Simon, you regard yourself as righteous. You probably think, I mean, what was Simon thinking? Does he think he's been forgiven already? Or does he think he didn't sin very much? He thinks he's pretty good. You think you're so morally good that you don't have anything to be forgiven of. Jesus says, Simon, your lack of love proves you've not been forgiven much. And then Jesus offers up an equation. This is the equation. How do people become people who love? Jesus says, be forgiven much. Right? I put it in math formula for you. Forgiven much equals love much. Forgiven little loves little. So why did Simon love so little? Because he had been forgiven so little. Was it because he wasn't a sinner? Do you think that's why he wasn't forgiven much? Was, was he not with sin? No. He's arrogant. He's judging. He's got plenty of sins to be forgiven. Plenty. He had been forgiven so little because he was unwilling to look at his sin and admit how broken he was. And why did the woman love so much? Her sin was open for all to see. She knew how much she needed forgiveness, and she had found it in Jesus. She had found it there. And just to make it really, really clear, Jesus adds this punch. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And everyone at the table grumbles. Why, why are they grumbling? They're grumbling because they're like, who has the right to forgive sins? Who has the right except God? And you see what Jesus is doing is he's challenging what everyone is thinking. He's challenging what they, who they think he really is. He's challenging Simon. 
He's exposing, hey, Simon, you actually made four errors about me. These are the four errors that Jesus is going to correct. He exposes these four. One, Simon thought Jesus must not know this woman. But guess what? Jesus knew her completely, and he loved her. Simon was wrong. Second, Simon thought Jesus couldn't possibly know what Simon was thinking in his own head. But Jesus did know what Simon was thinking in his own head. Third, Simon concludes Jesus couldn't be a prophet from God. But Jesus, knowing the woman and knowing what Simon was thinking, proves that he's a prophet from God, that he is from God. And four, Simon thought that Jesus couldn't be a holy person. But Jesus proves he's not a holy person. He is the holy person. He's not from God. He is God. He doesn't just love sinners. He forgives sin forever. This is Jesus. This is what he does. And this is the secret to becoming people who love more. Be forgiven more. Be forgiven more. And this is why it has to be a refraction that forgiveness enters in and then something in our heart changes and love comes out. We want the world to have more love in it than don't just turn up the dial on love. No, you have to turn up the dial on forgiveness. So then you might ask, well, well then Scott, hey, so, so then should I just go out and should I sin a whole bunch so that when God forgives me of that, it will make me into an even more loving person. I should, I should go that way. And, and I want you to know you're not the first person to come up with that argument. The Apostle Paul actually came up with that in, in Romans chapter 6. And he says, God forbid. God forbid. If that's your thought, like, oh, if I turn up sinning, then the more I get forgiven, the more loving I'll become. Um, Paul says, by no means, because it means you're missing two things. Two fundamental misunderstandings in that. One it would mean you don't understand how much it costs Jesus to forgive you. How much your forgiveness costs. How much he loves you. If you really understood what it cost him and what he's offering to you, you would never want to sin because you love him. Because you love him. And you'd want to respond to the one who's been so gracious with you with faith and love and obedience. The second misunderstanding if you say, hey, I want to go on sinning so I can be forgiven more, that means you're not aware of how big your list is already. Your list is big enough. It's long enough. Your sins right now in this moment are long enough that if you realize the full forgiveness of Jesus Christ, it would make you into the most loving person who ever walked on this planet. That's how much sin you have and how much grace has been given to you through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It'll transform you. It'll transform you. So then what should we do? If Jesus' equation is true, what should we do? If it's true, the way to become more loving is to receive more forgiveness. How do we do that? It's by seeing what he poured out on you. You see, the woman came. She brought her ointment her most precious thing. And she came to the feet of Jesus and she wanted to show the greatness of her love for Jesus Christ. So she took something that was precious that she could only pour out once that cost her all that she had and she poured it out on his feet to show the greatness of her love for him. Do you know how Jesus has shown the greatness of his love for you? 
he poured something out. And it was very expensive. And it was very precious. And it cost him all he had. And he could only pour it out once. And he poured it out once for all. On a cross. In order to forgive your sin, he let all the penalty of your sin fall on him on that cross. And it killed him. And then he willingly gave himself for you there. Do you know what he did then? He poured grace on you. The grace is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It washes away all our sin. Forgiveness forever. Your sin is so bad that you owe a a debt you can never pay. It's not 50 days wages. It's not 500 days wages. That's not your debt. No, it's all of your life for eternity. You owe. But he gave his life in exchange for yours. He offered himself as a substitute for what you've done. We're forgiven because he died and paid for our sins. We're, we're the ones that are brought in. We're the ones that are accepted. We're the ones that can come to the party because all of the weight of our sin was on him and he was condemned. And therefore now, if you put your trust in him, even tonight, this moment, all your sin is gone. The full forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's paid for. It's washed away. So even then, a, a little more practically, what, what can we do? What can we do? Invite God to show you your sin. Invite him to open up your eyes to see your sin. Your list is already there. And you might be afraid. You're like, won't God judge me if I invite him to see my sin? Won't won't he be angry with me for all the wrong I've done? Let me tell you, he already sees it. He already knows it. He knows it all. And in full knowledge of it, He went to the cross. Seeing more of your wrongness allows you to see the greatness of his forgiveness of it. He wants to show you all the places where you're lost because he wants to show you all the places where he wants to find you. He'll find you there. We need to see more deeply the weight of our sin if we're going to receive more forgiveness. So what would happen if we started praying, God, show me my sin. Show me more. Just like recognizing it's there and I'm terrified to look at it. It's like looking in the closet that's like a mess. It's even worse. It's like horrible. But but God, would you show it to me in your mercy and your love? Could you show me more of my sin? Help me to see it so that I can see more fully the incredible forgiveness that's offered to me. You know what the cross says? It says his forgiveness is complete. Because it's finished. It's done. It never has to be paid for again. The cross, it says his, fini- his, his forgiveness was offered 2,000 years ago. That means it precedes your wrongs. Before you ever did one thing wrong, he died for you. The cross says his forgiveness knows no limits, no boundaries. He'll cross any barrier. He'll overcome any obstacle in love for you. His forgiveness towers your sin's bad? We're like, no, my sin's really, really bad. Is your sin bad? It's, it's a drop compared to the towering greatness of the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. What if we became a church that every week was falling down on our knees and confessing our sin? 
What if we became a church where we're confessing our sin to each other? Where we're confessing our sin to God again and again? What if we became the church in the Bay Area that needed forgiveness the most? We're like, I need forgiveness a lot. I need it so much. Do you know what you'd find? As you receive more, it's a limitless supply. And then he's changing you into the kind of people that refract his love to the world that needs it so much. What would you find if we needed forgiveness a lot? We would find his forgiveness is great. And it is free. And it is sufficient. He gave all he is for all that you are. His forgiveness is greater than all your sin. Will you come to him and receive forgiveness again and again and again and again? Would you bow your heads and pray with me now? I can't believe that you love that much, Jesus. I'm just blown away at the thought of how precious your gift was, how great the sacrifice, how much you gave. Thank you that you, you gave before I ever sinned. Like your cross has already happened. It precedes my wrongs. And it's greater than all my wrongs. Would you help us, God, to be people who see our sin more? Would you expose our hearts, the, the, the pride and self-righteousness, the judgment? God, all, all of the ways that we're finding things that we think are better than you and we're turning away. And God, all the ways that we, we revolt against you. Would you just, would you make us a people who see it and feel it, aware of the weight of our sin? So we could know more and more and more the fullness of your forgiveness of it. That there's no one like you. Make us into people like this woman. That we cannot stay away. We cannot stop. That we're crying again and again, pouring it on your feet. Because there's no one like you. Make us into the people that love so much. That it would change the world. That we could be your lovers telling of your forgiveness going to a world that needs it so much. Would you make us a people that confess and fall down and look at our own wickedness again and again so we can see you more fully for who you really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's thank him for his forgiveness. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're going to need that.